Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. On The Verge is presented by Cure, cannabis used for research and education. The medical industry is steadfastly looking to help millions of patients that suffer from injuries related to repetitive motion, sports, trauma, and many other orthopedic injuries, as well as skin disorders, mental disorders, cancer, and osteoporosis, to name only a few of the other underlying conditions that billions suffer from each day. On average in this country, we have 10,000 people turning 65 every day. With the cost of pharmaceutical medicines increasing, patients deserve natural alternatives that are not only more cost-effective, but also safer for them and society. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing a therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website at www.curemich.com. Cure. Cannabis used for research and education. Welcome to On The Verge. Today's special guest is my club fitter here at Ensworth, longtime friend, but really one of the super geniuses in club fitting. And he has a couple of, of his things that is really important to me and the art team here, which is gap testing and understanding how to maximize your accuracy and your distance off the tee. So a lot of people come here only wanting distance, but distance isn't functional if you can't find it. So we're trying to find the most functional distance, make sure that our players have normal gaps, and with all of the equipment that's out there, we're going to delve deep into what we expect to see in 2021. Joining me today from Summit Golf, longtime friend Stephen Hodge. Stephen, how are you today, buddy? Doing very well, Virgil. Well, when it comes to club fitting, it's one of the four parts of the game that if you don't have, you can't play to the best of your ability. What was that moment, whether it was in your junior golf life or your professional life, where you recognized that this is an underserved part of the golf industry and a massively important part for the enjoyment of somebody striving to at least enjoy the game, but at the most try to take it to the, the highest level of competition? Yeah, for me, it started when I started in the industry. I started working at a golf galaxy mm-hmm. here in Nashville and uh, got right into just normal sales floor um, activities. And then I've always been a connector with people. I've always wanted to connect with people mm-hmm. and being taught, get the people clubs, get them out fast, in fast, out fast. Let's turn these over quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started realizing that the needs of golfers weren't being met. We were looking at them as walking wallets, get them in, get them out. And they're spending thousands of dollars yeah. on golf clubs. And so I wanted to get into the, the fitting side of things there. And the building side of things, because I just wanted—I wanted to kind of wrap myself up in all of the industry as sure. much as I could, kind mm-hmm. of widen my net there. Um, so I got into the fitting side of things at the Golf Galaxy there, and realized 
how much a fitting could change the outcome and how much it impacted somebody. But mm. then I also saw the golfers start to own the process. The more that I taught them, the more that I spoke with them, the more that I said, hey, this is what's happening, and let me explain why that happened, the more they owned the process and mm-hmm. the more they, they felt like they were a part of it and the easier the rest of it was. They didn't question, am I spending too much? Is this, am I getting too deep into this or whatever? They mm-hmm. owned that and they started, to, they started to grow not only skill level-wise mm-hmm. but knowledge-wise. And when you gain that knowledge in the industry, you're already a step ahead of most everybody else. Sure, 100%. And to me, the, the, the part of it is that history of the game has been people going into the pro shop in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and then they're going to the big box stores and they started to become popular. And they're an, an addictive substance. If you're new into golf, my kids, like if I say, hey, we're going to go to Golf Galaxy, you'd think that we're going to Disney World. Yeah. I think it's a little less enticing than it was at the very beginning, man. At the very beginning, man, it was intoxicating having all these clubs there to hit and look at and yep. the balls everywhere. I mean, it was golf heaven. It's a little bit different now because so many other golf stores, and like we have here, we compete against them because we have also a pretty awesome experience. Probably even more awesome with less visual selection with as much or more selection, but we don't, there's no stock. Mm-hmm. We customize everything. I love golf equipment, but you, you nailed it, is that you recognized you didn't like the feeling of making them feel like we were only interested in their wallet. And that's not a good way to maintain a customer. And you, because you're a human connector, much like I am, it mattered more that they knew that it was a team event, that you had your interests were equally as high as theirs and making sure that they were the best that they could be. Man, that's a true gift. Yeah. Speaking of your ability to connect, where does that come from? Is that mom or dad, or is there somebody that was in, in your life that while you were developing, you recognized the power of like how cool that felt that somebody was either gave you that much time or care or love, or you just saw it? Who, who were your impactors in, in the connection piece? Oh, man. I, it's definitely, I, I, am, I am very much like my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of that outgoing, kind of silly personality when I was younger. That's just, that's just who I was always the silly one. I was mm-hmm. always trying to make everybody laugh. And I kind of saw how connecting with people could make certain situations that are really, really bad, mm-hmm. not so bad. And it kind of helped people navigate life because life's really hard and it's really difficult. And it's even harder when you're isolated or you're, mm-hmm. you feel isolated. And sometimes that, that connector is the one that helps you through that season. And you never really know what people are going through. Yeah. And so you just got to, you try to treat, I, I try to treat everybody the same as if I, I don't know your story. You may come in looking happy and, and I may think, you know, if you drive a nice car, you've got every, everything's, going, everything's going great for you. But I don't know if two weeks ago you filed bankruptcy or, or whatever it is, or you got divorced mm, or yeah. something's, uh, something's pushing you back you know, against the wall. And so it's just one of those things where you gotta, you gotta really try to connect with people. And, and my childhood was, was great. You know, I, I have two extremely loving parents. They're, they're, they're amazing humans. Uh, I grew up with two, two brothers, one older, one younger. So as a middle mm-hmm. child, I think that kind of helped mold me to kind of sure. figure out. I wanted to always be like my older brother, but I always wanted to make sure my younger brother was tended to and, mm-hmm. and was brought along with. And hmm. um, So that was just kind of, I, I grew up in a, a, in a good community. You know, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, it wasn't it's not a huge town. I didn't mm-hmm. grow up in big 
big town and I didn't go to a huge school. Um, but I think even athletics played a big part of that. Even fourth grade, I started playing on a travel basketball team, um, learning camaraderie there, yeah. learning how to how to cooperate with people from different scenarios, different backgrounds that grew up in different neighborhoods, and how to fight for one thing together. You know, I just, for me, it was it was a pretty easy navigation of who I was. Sure. My parents did a really good job of that. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, one of the things I wanted to get into, I want to get into what we see in 2021, the golf clubs that are coming out, what we're excited about. And then I want to delve into the specifics of the questions that I sense most people have, which is shaft flex. How does that impact? How do I know I have something that's too weak or too stiff? So we're going to cover all of those things because we're going to try to answer as many questions as we can so that you stop thinking that you can just go into a store and pull it off of a shelf and think that you're set. Obviously, me being Callaway, and Callaway had been a a huge sponsor of mine, I I like bringing in people that are completely detached from a brand so that it looks like it's authentic. And most people, even though I tell them I don't really care what they play, I just want them to play good, they still think that that's not quite the truth. So at the end of the day, my job is to inform people and bring in a non-biased source. So you're my greatest non-biased source. When you think of 2021 and what we got coming out, what are you most excited about and excited to see the performance of in the clubs that are coming? I think I'm most excited in general that all the manufacturers seem to have a fair swing at things. Mm-hmm. You know, 10 years ago, it seemed like there were one or two top dogs and that was it. Um, and slowly but surely, all the other manufacturers have started to creep up. Now, I don't, I don't think, um, you know, there's still going to be top dogs. There, there are mm. always going to be companies that spend more in marketing and they have the top players and they have more TV time and, and whatnot. But I really am enjoying that, that everybody's making really good clubs right now. Yeah. It seems that as we've gotten more into this age and culture of being able to have instant knowledge from YouTube watching professionals hit golf clubs – and all these really great um, YouTube uh, personalities that, that test these golf clubs, they kind of keep these companies a little honest, a little more honest than, mm-hmm. than they have been in the past. And so I think everything's kind of coming to the light and people are getting more informed. Um, but I, I, as time goes on, I'm get, I get more and more excited about irons and less and less excited about drivers. drivers. Just because their, their drivers are, are capped as far as what we can do with the you know, middle – Middle strike, well-struck golf ball. There's mm-hmm. only so much we can do because the USGA and RNA are, are pretty tight on those rules yeah. and regulations. But irons, it seems like we're really making some good progress with certain materials that we're using. Um, and then, like as you alluded to earlier, the shafts. I'm just I'm excited about materials that are coming out in yeah. shafts and, and how we're able to make um, lighter materials stronger. Yeah. So let's start in the high handicapper world in the iron department. You know the 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 basically the cavity back maximum forgiveness and even some of the like the gel infused heads that you know kind of create some artificial flyer or get the ball further. What are the clubs that you're looking forward to the most there, and why is it that a beginning golfer, somebody who loves the game, should probably shooting in the low hundreds to probably high eighties would be interested in? Yeah, I think. Um I, I always like the brands that come out with a, with a pretty wide range of golf clubs. So you have, um, like Mizuno t- tends to kind of really grasp and throw a pretty wide net. Yeah. And they're always well known for their irons. And I think they, they show why as soon as you pick them up, they look good, they feel good, they sound good. Um, 
But I think that everybody, you know, Strixon's coming out with a really strong game in, in, in the iron game this year. The ZX Series irons are phenomenal. Um, but I'm just, I'm really excited about how we're not necessarily just, we, we're not just keeping on jacking the lofts up. We're not just going to keep strengthening them and strengthening them and strengthening them. We're actually now playing with tungsten. We're playing with how far away can we pull that CG away from the face and how deep can we pull it to get that ball up in the air. Mm -hmm. And then also manufacturers are starting to focus on shafts and what, what sha stock shafts can we offer? You know, back in the day, it was just one or two shafts. Now it's yeah. four or five, six, seven shafts that are stock offerings. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm really excited just about in a whole, like even the player's distance clubs that that have grown quite a bit those have changed you know at first it was just kind of the tailor-made p790s and then pxg came out with some and you always had like you talked about the the jumpers the one that would just kind of fly and fly and fly mm -hmm. we've, we've tightened that up quite a bit so hanma's got a, a killer tr21x mm -hmm. um, it's a phenomenal club that touches a really wide range mm -hmm. and the, the good thing about these clubs is they're you can combo them yeah which all these manufacturers are getting really good at mm -hmm. you know back you know, a few years ago, you could, if you bought a chunky club, it was on its own. Like you, you really couldn't combo them. And That's now right. you can kind of see that these manufacturers are starting to realize that not everybody is going to be playing the same club for through pitching wedge. Yeah. They're going to combo those. And, and that's kind of the, the big part of where I come in. Yeah. Without a doubt. And, and the thing is that most people, most people that are playing the game don't remember when pitching wedge was 48 degrees, Yeah, you know, and the three iron was 21 degrees, you know. So when they come in and they hit the, they, they hit the pitching wedge 152, and then I see this a lot, especially here on this golf team where we have so much talent, but they're going from like little, bo little teenage boys to, uh, you know, men. Mm-hmm. So we had probably four kids on this team that had the TaylorMade 790s, and they needed them at 13, 14, and they were 5'2", 117 pounds with a cement block in their back pocket, yeah. right? And then all of a sudden, they grow eight inches, put on 40 pounds of muscle, and now they're having the problems that I've always discussed with these, these rocket ship irons. Man, they feel good. They sound incredible. And, you know... By and large, they are so good. But when you watch on the track, man, you see the the scatter shot or like just the shot sh collision of a hundred shots, so to speak. The shot pattern, man, it's long and wide. Mm -hmm. It's long and wide. And like, there was a boy on the team who just got uh, tailor made irons, uh, and he, he the tailor made blades, so the mm -hmm. new MBs versus the seven nineties, right? So yeah. he, the first thing I hear is. I'm hitting it like 17 yards shorter. Well, I'm like, well, your seven iron now is an eight iron, you know. So that's why it's it's not the same. Yeah. And you you feel like your miss hits kind of give you a little feedback. Don't like that that toe ball so much anymore. And but at the end of the day, these the I believe that you can't play at a high level if you don't know exactly how far the ball is going to go. And there's a club head speed that all of a sudden those those seven nineties, the PXGs, the you know Callaway's Apex Pro now, and the the Strixon has has one, and Mizuno has one, and Titleist two, the T T three hundreds. Man, you you just cannot predict any. Like you get to a certain club head speed, and all of a sudden you could get about anything mm -hmm. and you can't play competitive golf knowing that you have this occasional heater yeah and it's cost it cost some of these kids some big tournaments 
And they're like, well, what do I do? And then, the, then like the ego takes a hit. Now they're not hitting seven iron one ninety two. Now they're hitting six iron one ninety two, and they don't recognize that it's not them; it's the loft. Mm-hmm. And so to, uh, to get people to understand that it'd be a whole lot easier for everybody if instead of a number on the club, it just said the loft yeah. so that we could really compare apples to apples. But at the end of the day, you figuring out the gapping and getting the trajectory tight, the right amount of arc in the shot, not a low and a riser and not up too fast and floating. When you, when you look at what TrackMan offers us, and what you've learned over the last, you know, my goodness, you've been now fitting all, probably for 12 years, right? Yep. What have you learned in, like, the, the what you like to see in the shot shape, f- trajectory, and the, the dispersion uh, as it comes to the club fitting process? Yeah, I like to, I think of this as the golf shot, high, low, left, and right. It's all skill. Mm-hmm. So the golf course... 9.9 times out of 10 is only going to take spin away from you. Rarely ever does it give you. Yeah. It's going to take from you. And so we want to go out there with within reason. There's caps to it. But the most amount of reasonable spin that we can get, and then a good peak height that is, you know, four, five, six, seven years ago, it was, you know, PGA Tour players where it was all this. Every, every club was the same height. It was 90 feet, mm-hmm. 95 feet in the air, all clubs. And now what we're seeing is with the ball change – flying a little bit higher, spinning a little bit less. So yeah. we need that stopping power from height. Now everything's kind of 110, 120 feet in the air. Um, you know, with the, with this, this is all for 90 mile an hour, seven, seven iron swing speeds. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and so what we're seeing is I, I would want to give each player the ability to hit all those different types of shots. So when we go through a fitting, it's easy for that, that, that golfer just to keep, just smashing shots left and right, just keep going and going and going and going, hitting mm-hmm. the same shot over and over and over again. But sometimes what I'll do is I'll back them off, talk to them for a little bit, just kind of distract them, yeah. put them back on the ball and go, okay, hit me, hit, hit a low cut. And then all of a sudden they can't. And I'm like, keep trying. Four or five swings in, we, we, we're not able to do it. So now we know we got to change something up. Because mm-hmm. there's no point. I, I see so often golfers come in with 14 clubs in the bag and they hit 11 of them. Three of them they don't ever touch. And it's like, why would you even do that? If you're going to put 14, if we're allowed 14 clubs, let's get 14 weapons in the bag that are usable. Yeah. And so I talk to golfers and I say, you know, if you've got a, for, for a right-handed golfer, if you've got a front right pin on a par three over a bunker or over water, can you hit it? Are you firing at that pin? Or are you going Middle center, of green. center of green or, or back left? And if they tell me I'm not firing at that pin, we got to change that. Because you got to be able to fire at pins. Mm-hmm. If if it's a green light, let's take that green light. Yeah, for sure. Because that's a weapon that you can put in the bag, and that's where we need that height. We need that spin, mm-hmm. and then it's up to you as a golfer to learn the skill of knocking that flight down and knocking the spin down. And that's why you see, you know, Tiger Woods, one of the greatest iron players. I mean, probably the greatest iron player ever. Yeah. Still, he plays the the spinnier golf ball, and he plays weak lofted irons, the weakest on tour. Yeah, yeah. I think spin spin is a is a great player's friend, but it's the bad player's enemy. And uh, this is what I mean by that, uh, if you're out there in that world, is what golf technology has done recently is has put driver technology in iron heads. So it has basically taken the point where 
just for a lack of a bit, just simple, you know, generally speaking, if I hit a blade, my blades, with a 7-iron, the spin's going to be between 66 and 7,100, probably, maybe 64 to 7,100, just depending. Mm -hmm. But that's a pretty solid range. But if you play a 790 tailor-made or something that's got that, what I call driver technology in the iron head, you might see that it's 4,700. Yeah. So why is that important for the beginning golfer? Well, if we reduce the spin of the ball 45%, it's not only reducing the backspin 45%, but it's also altering the spin axis of the golf ball, which makes it slice or hook 45%. So now the ball's already flying higher due to where the mass is on the head and how the, how the ball is launching because the balls are meant to fly higher and spin less. And the clubs also are meant to bike the ball fly higher and spin less. So it's a double high and low, low spin. Mm -hmm. Now the average golfer should be hitting it much higher 45% straighter, yeah. which means you know some people might still be hitting in the woods, but not way in the woods. Yeah. But more people should be hitting fairways, hitting it closer to greens. Mm -hmm. Maybe not hitting more greens, but like they feel like they're playing better golf. But then you get enough skill, and that club is no longer good. And I think that's the helping people understand how you transition out of certain clubs into other clubs, like heel-heavy you know, heel-weighted hybrids to help you fix that slice as you're beginning the game is a terrible golf club when you're a two-handicap. Yeah. God, you can't keep it on Mother Earth. It's hooking so bad. Yeah. And people don't understand, like, why does it all of a sudden change? Mm -hmm. It's because you changed. You got better, and now that club, which was so great for you mm -hmm. last year, not so good this year. Yeah. Now, Stephen calls that job security. I call that golf. Yeah. But, I mean, at the end of the day, that's what we're, that's what we're circling around is trying to get everybody to play more golf, yep. no matter what their quality is, improve their quality ever so slightly so that they feel encouraged to keep going, and then watch them break through levels in scores and in equipment. Yep. And, man, that's – and if you love golf, that's what it's all about. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think you made some really great points there. It's, it's part of the, the hardest part of golf for an amateur is, like you said, one, knowing how far they hit the ball. But if we take into the in consideration these these ones that don't spin enough, we're now having to guess how much it's going to roll out. Mm -hmm. So we need to guess how much it's when it's going to hit grass and ground that we have no idea what the pitch and roll of that is. We have to guess mm -hmm. every single time how far is that going to roll out. So you, I, I have golfers come in here that they'll hit a seven iron on the, on on track man and it'll it'll carry one one fifty, but roll out to one one seventy. And they'll only see the 170. That's all they see. They're blinded by it. <laughs> and you're, I'm sitting there going, let's get the next club. Yeah. Like I'm already within one, two swings. I'm seeing that. And I'm like, on to the next Ow. club. And they're like, wait, what? They think I'm, I'm doing them a just like, they, they're now looking at me like, you don't know what you're talking about. That, that just went 170. And I'm like, no, no, that's not usable. That's, yeah. not, that's not golf. Yeah. That's, 100%. That's, you're just going out there swinging as hard as you can and, and hoping. And I'm like, that's part of the job where it's like, you have to, me as a fitter, I can't just focus on the fitting aspect of things. I have to learn, and I've had to grow in the last two years of doing this here, mm -hmm. three years of doing this here, is kind of listen to what you're doing with golfers as a coach mm -hmm. and, and try to pick up as much as I can on the sideline from what you do. Because I have to be able to know what caused some of those things because it's not always the club. Yeah. Sometimes it's the golfer. 
So I have to learn those things and how to manipulate those things. Now, there's some things that I can do as a fitter to manipulate the golf swing, but each golfer is going to be different, and some people will override that. Yeah. So like you were talking about the heel-weighted clubs, there are some golfers out there that will feel that weight, and they'll override it, and they'll crank that face wide open subconsciously. They don't even know they're doing it. Yeah. And they'll, they'll flail them out to the right all day long. Yeah. And then as soon as I give them something that's a little more central rated or even some toe weight, they may square that face up a little easier mm-hmm. just because they're, they're used to something or they want to feel something. And that's, that's the whole point of what I do is just to be able to learn who you are quickly and then go through the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of, sh- of shaft head combos out there and yeah. narrow it down to six, seven, eight of them. You know, we make 60 to 75 swings in an iron fitting and by the end we're good. Yeah. I think most people don't understand something that you just said. And I think it's, blew my mind the better the player is or the more experienced a player is as soon as you bring adjustability into the head i had to go through this the hard way so but when you see those sliding weights on the back of driver heads and you move it toward the toe that puts more weight on the toe which slows down the ability of the face Mm -hmm. to close so it should make the ball fade more for me my subconscious recognizes that the face is not is lagging and it forces me to release harder mm-hmm. so i'm like why is it that i hook it more when the weight's on the toe and one of the tour guys for callaway said try this i know you're not going to believe this but i think you're demonstrating a trait of a player who's played a lot of golf balls is that move it to the other side where you feel like it's in the heel and you sense it's and it's going to force you to hold it off. Yep. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I move the sliding weight. I guess it was the epic flash. I move the sliding weight to the heel mm-hmm. and just faded it. And I'm like, but I could feel yep. like I felt like my hands were like, hold on. And I don't know how that would work because I didn't end up going with that driver. I ended up going with the Sub-Zero anyway. Mm-hmm. But I was like, I didn't know how I could play that nervous. Yeah. I figured I could have no trouble doing that non-nervous, but I wondered what would happen if, in the heat of battle, and I felt like I was too big of a risk. That's what I wonder is like how talented players, especially tour players, mm-hmm. like they change golf clubs, I think, recklessly. Mm-hmm. Historically, they've been reckless changing golf clubs. Yeah. And they think they can do something because of what they did on a range with three people telling them how good they are with no pressure. And then the first, the most recent version of this is Justin Rose. Mm-hmm. He leaves TaylorMade at number one in the world, joins a good friend of his who takes over Hanma for just mm-hmm. a short amount of time, and they combine it. He gets involved in the design of golf clubs, and that sounds intoxicating yeah. to a tour player. Yep. And where is he gone? Like, he's evaporated. Mm-hmm. Justin Rose has not been a factor in anything since he left TaylorMade. Now, he's back to playing TaylorMades. Yeah. But much like we've seen in the past, I'll just go through my memory bank of my early life. Payne Stewart changed and disappeared for years. Corey Pavin went to those spaceship VAS irons at the peak of his career, never to be heard from again. Um, Even though he did win the U.S. Open with him, it was brand, like, right off the... Right off the presses, yeah. but it didn't take long. And bye bye, Corey Pavin. Of course, he was also the shortest player in the history of the tour, mm-hmm. and the game got longer, and he got exited. Um, but there's so many people that change equipment for the money, and they sit back and think about it, and they're like, I could have made more money 
winning golf tournaments mm -hmm. than this $1 million contract. Now I suck. Yeah. You know, another, another great example, Bubba Watson changing to the Volvic golf ball from Titleist. Yeah. <sighs> I'm not saying that Volvic makes a bad, makes a bad product. I'm just saying that Bubba Watson's used to seeing one thing. And yeah. if there's ever anybody who cannot afford to change their stuff, yeah. it's Bubba Watson. Yeah. He, he has too much movement on his ball. He has too much. So if you start changing center of gravities on him, God, he's taking years off just trying yeah. to figure it out. Yeah. Well, it's the mindset of, of, of golfers in general. We're, at the pro level, it's more exaggerated, where it's, yeah. it's never their fault. It's never them. It's always, I mean, you know this more than anybody, but it's, it can never be them. It's always yeah. something else. It's but as something. soon as you open that door, it's almost as if it gets shut so fast behind you and then locked, and then the doors rotate, so you don't know which one you came in and out of. Yeah. And so it's brutal. And you look at Justin Rose, and it's like he won, I think, the first tournament of putting the Hanmas in play. That's right. And then played well for two or three tournaments, and then it was downhill. So you know it's not equipment because he was winning before and after change. So you're, from my point of view, I'm going, it's not the equipment. It's what's in, what's in between your years and looking at that. And then you look at even just some golfers here, like we'll go through fittings, and they'll come in, and they'll hit. Everybody knows Mizuno. Everybody knows TaylorMade. Everybody knows Callaway. And as soon as I put a club like a, like a Hanma in their hands, they, they've never heard of it. Some of them have never heard of it. They're just like, no, I don't, I don't care how I hit it. They could be smoking it and hitting it great. Numbers are way better. Dispersion's tighter. Everything's better. Not doing it. And it's just this mental block that we have in our heads that, that we as golfers, we just, we just block out so much. And mm -hmm. that's kind of the beauty of the technology that we have today and the Internet is that we're starting to branch out a little bit more. And we're able to, to open people's minds to, I'm not just, this isn't my opinion that this club is better. I can show you yeah. factually that this club is better. Here's your dispersion. Here are your numbers. Yeah. Faster output, better spin rates. Your, your standard deviation from all these numbers is way tighter. Mm -hmm. it's, it's an all-around better club. Yeah. You know? and, and like you were talking about earlier with, with the, when we move the weight on clubs and things like that, and you were you were... There are different types of players, and we're learning that now. And we're learning with TrackMan and Gears. We're able to see how much a golfer is manipulating that shot. And we'll see it. I'll see it all the time in, in the hitting bay with, with golfers who are really struggling with face-to-path or, or just face or, or club path issues. Yeah. And I'll tell them, swing more to the left, and they'll change club face, not club path. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it shows how some golfers struggle with what – what is, what's my club path? And you're like, well, you know, if you're playing baseball and it's teed up for you, swing more to third base, second base, or first base. Yeah. Swing the, the club that way. Don't worry about the face, but they're swinging the club on the same path and just moon, manipulating the face around. And when we do that, we're, we're massively, um, our, our, our strike is degrading on that. And then mm. every, all the numbers start coming down. And so it's like, with, with the weight shifting on that, there's so much that happens subconsciously that we have to be aware of. Yeah, 100%. One of the things I hear a lot about is not knowing when you should move from regular flex to stiff, stiff to extra stiff, mm -hmm. when to come back from extra stiff to stiff. What are some of your th things that people should be thinking of, You know, especially uh, two different arenas, well, three different arenas. One is a junior golfer growing into an adult size and picking up significant club head speed. Yeah. A senior golfer decreasing in club speed. And then an adult 
uh, increasing their skill level and moving from, you know, the 98 mile per hour driver swing to the 110 mile per hour driver swing. And, you know, I've always found that the most dicey move is stiff to extra stiff and mm-hmm. all, and because to get to extra stiff, I find it to be about 112 or 113 driver speed as like easy, but Clear you get cut. to like 109. Now you're kind of like, you're, you have a really hard job at 109 because you're going to be dealing with probably a little more spin than you want with a stiff. And the weight of an extra stiff is going to disturb them and almost feel like they have to fire their right arm faster and it distorts their shot. And they're really hard to fit. Obviously with, with technology, I think it mainly started with, uh, Royal precision, making the, the flexes and like half flexes. Mm -hmm that really opened the eyes of people. So you can really kind of, you can stiffen up a, a stiff mm-hmm. to like stiff plus. Yeah. Or you can soft cut an X if the person likes weight. Like right. a, an older player, maybe 58, who was a really good player and not, can't move it like they used to, you might butt cut an extra stiff to soften it slightly, but they still keep all that heavy weight of an extra stiff versus moving them down to stiff, which takes a little, what feels like a lot of that, that weight you feel just below the grip goes away mm-hmm. of, from an extra stiff. Yeah. Um, talk to us about some of the things that people should be paying attention to as it pertains to shaft flex. Yeah. So shaft flex is, is a tough, is a tough one. There's no black and white chart. I mean, if you walk into a golf galaxy or any of these big box stores, you'll see a chart that says, here's swing speeds. This is where you should start looking. It's an okay starting point. Yes. That's a great point. That's like a map that shows the beginning and the end with nothing in between. It's like, it's okay. There's a good starting point. What's in the middle. Let's figure out what's going on in the middle. And for me, it's output. So it's, it's input and output. So if somebody's swinging the driver, 106, 107 miles an hour, and they're getting, you know, they're peaking at 160 ball speed. They're kind of sitting right about there. Let's start looking at X. Yeah. And let's start, but let's start looking at profiles of X that aren't super like, low like a Ventus black. Yeah. You know, one of the, one of the, the, the stiffest tip section that Fujikura has ever made. Let's not look there. Let's look at some other ones that have a little bit softer, maybe, maybe a little bit softer in the handle, a little bit softer in the midsection and kind of figure out where that golfer feels because mm-hmm. we're all going to feel things differently. Some golfers are going to feel what's going on more down at the lower end of the, of the shaft. Some are going to feel the midsection and then some are going to feel up in, in the handle. Mm-hmm. So we need to figure that out and then we can start looking at other areas. Um, I try to keep things pretty hidden from the player. That's a good I, idea. I try to tell them up front, like I'm going to change you in and out of clubs. Don't look. Don't ask. I'll tell. I'll tell you. You're nothing. You're, I'm not sneaking anything by you, but you don't need to know because what I don't want happening is you subconsciously overriding something that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And the ego of the golfer is, I mean, it's Goliath. <laughs> I, I'm David when it shows up. It is. It is. It is Goliath, and I have to have my slingshot ready. Yes, you do. Buddy. I gotta. I gotta get ready for it because as soon as I go, somebody comes in. They're like, Yeah, I've, I've been playing extra stiff my whole life, and they're swinging. Seven iron, eighty miles an hour. I'm like, we're far from it, buddy. <laughs> yeah, man. Do you want to like? And then it's kind of like, do you want to play better golf, or do you want to be macho man running around the golf course telling your buddies you play X flex? And yeah. so it's more about output. It's more about what's coming out of that club, because then I can show them, hey, we're getting more out of this club. Mm-hmm. In, in as technology's gotten better, we've been able to do so much more with shafts. So yeah. back in the day, it was 130 grams. 
that was your extra Whether you liked stiff, it or not. That was, that was it. <laughs> and now we're getting better with it, especially with the introduction of good graphite. Yeah. So I, you know, I think Ricky this week at the American Express, is play, he's switched over to graphite. Is he really? Which one? The MMT, the Mitsubishi MMT is right. the one Abraham Answer plays. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, they're getting a lot of, of, of recognition there. Um, but we're able to make these, these graphite shafts that have some sort of metal or steel in them. So MMT is uh, metal mesh technology. So they're actually taking mesh and wrapping it around in the prepreg layers of the graphite. So when it gets wrapped up, there's actual metal in it. Oh. So you get the benefits in the, the, of the strength of, of steel and metal not wanting to oval during the swing and, mm. and consistency of it, but you get the, sh- the, you know, the shock dampening of graphite, little extra speed coming into the ball, mm. little extra feel. Um, but it is, it is a tricky topic to cover with swing speed because it's not just swing speed. This, yeah, it's not just this one thing and that one thing. I can tell, you know, if I was talking to somebody on the phone or even your listeners now and yeah. saying, if you swing this fast, you're X flex. I can't. Yeah. It's not like that. And that's why it's important to, to know. Yeah. And then all these launch monitors nowadays are going to read speed a little bit differently. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a really important thing to, to keep in mind, too. We can get into that in just a second. I think one of the things that <clears throat> Tom Wishin found that I found was really interesting is that if you don't lag the shaft, so if you don't have proper impact dynamics, you've been at like Betty Lou, who's not played and hits hits every club ninety one yards, sand wedge to five wood. Not everything goes ninety one yards. Yeah. She's benefited by having a stiff a shaft as she can swing because she doesn't lag the shaft. So that throwing and the wiggle at the shaft is making the face open and close way more radically than if we found a lightweight stiff or extra stiff. The sh- the face won't twist, so they hit it much straighter. If they, if you don't lag it, the lightest, stiffest version is the best because of the your ability to scoop it and toss it straighter, mm-hmm. you know. But other than that, other than that little piece right there, like I think, if you can't lag the club, very good. Mm-hmm. At least if you can't lean the shaft one degree forward at impact, your job is bizarrely easy and complex at the same time because if you can't lag the shaft the shaft has lost its energy before you hit it so it's almost like it doesn't make a difference now it's like let's get the length right the grip size right and get you the most forgiveness that we can down there but if we can lag just one degree of forward lean now you're like okay this guy can hit it off the ground we don't have to worry about the fat in the skull yeah As, as much we certainly have to deal with it but i mean at the end of the day that's key where do you draw the line where you like steel graphite steel versus graphite and iron shafts? Where do you what are what are some of your markers that would make you encourage somebody like me, a person who's played golf a really long time, trending slower. Now I'm forty seven. I'm I still move it, but I I'm on the I'm on the downside of the mountain. <laughs> it's been a nice peak, yeah. but I'm on the downside of the mountain. <laughs> where would you draw the line of like you should really think about this MMT Virgil? Yeah. Where would that be? It would be in a series of questions and then me also seeing some things during a fitting. Mm-hmm. So I always do what I call the pre-fit interview. This is before I even meet you. Mm-hmm. So I'm sending you a questionnaire through email. And this is so that I don't waste your time when you're here. Yeah. Maximize our time together. We've yeah. got, I, don't, I don't cut it off at a specific time, but I don't want to waste your time. I don't want to waste swings. Yeah, for so sure. So if you come in and you say, yeah, I've been playing for 30 years and I just came off of elbow surgery. 
okay, there's, there's check mark number one. We're going to put graphite in because we're going to try it. Yeah, we're going to try We're going to try that. We're also going to try maybe some, you know, the, the Elevate with the VSS technology in it to help a little bit of feel in there mm-hmm. um, and maybe some other lightweight options and, and just kind of see. We're going to put some things in there. Or, you know, I, I just I played baseball for the longest time. I don't, my wrists are kind of bad. Things like that are, are just obvious markers of mm. let's try some graphite. Yeah. And it's hard because you've got to get that golfer into the mindset of this isn't the graphite of 10 years ago. This isn't old man Joe graphite. This is big boy graphite. This yeah. is Abraham Answer, Ricky Fowler, Brooks Kepka had it in the driving iron for a while. Snedge plays it. Snedge yeah. plays it. Yeah. The, the, and, I mean, we'll take it. We'll take his career any day. Yeah. If, if you don't mind nine wins, about 90 mil. Yeah. I mean, it seems pretty good. <laughs> but that's the thing about it is – Nowadays, there's almost no fitting where I won't sneak it in. Oh, wow. Just so, to see. Just, just to see because with, with steel, there's only so much we can do. We can't make it thicker. Mm-hmm. And we, can't, we can't, definitely can't make it any thinner because then otherwise... Just break. Yeah, it's, just, it's brittle and it's, it'll break and it just won't... It, won't, it can't handle the, the, big, the big dogs. So it's tough to make a lightweight... X flex big dog shaft. Yeah. So it's you you get 135, 125. You know, that 120 to 130 gram range is pretty that's pretty much it. Yeah. Whereas with with um graphite, we can go, you know, Mitsubishi makes a 105 TX that is still extremely stout. Hmm. But you get the you know, if if we need to go lighter, we have that ability to go lighter. Yeah. And so I like to put it in there. There are some players that I know I won't ever put it in if they're mm-hmm. just hogs and yeah. they're just slamming that club down and the, you know they need that heft and they need that weight and they that's what they're used to that's what they want they don't need any help with speed yeah but if if you know for somebody that that is maybe dropping down in speed or just wanting a touch more speed that graphite could possibly help them out there mm-hmm. and then you get the benefits of of the shock absorption which is huge I mean I don't need it. But I play it. I play yeah. the MMTs. Oh wow! And it's phenomenal. I mean, it's just a it's just a plus. Hmm. I haven't seen any downsides so far. Is that right? Mm-hmm. No, like especially where I'd be concerned. I wouldn't be concerned with my long irons. I wouldn't be concerned with my middle irons. I'd be concerned with the ninety yard gap wedge yeah. that I'm trying to keep down. What's uh, no no issues there with the no. weight being so light. No, so what we do, what I do is with the wedges, we'll actually go heavier. Mm. So I play 105 TX in the irons, and then as soon as I get to my gap wedge, I do 125 stiff. Uh, so I go heavier, softer. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then that way we get the weight up, so we get that touchy-feely, uh-huh. but we're going a little bit softer and flex that we still get. Yeah, and plus we're not, ri- we're not ripping at it as hard. Yeah, exactly. I tell people all the time, I try to get people to revisualize things that have nothing to do with golf. Full swings are like fastballs. Mm-hmm. Pitch shots are like dar- throwing darts. You're lean forward. Everything's yeah. quiet, and it's just a soft motion. Yeah. You're not winding up, and deli- you shouldn't be yeah. delivering. And I would tell you, this is inside scoop from the tour off of TrackMan, is that one of the things that makes Rory inconsistent with his wedges is he hits them full. Mm-hmm. And I cannot believe he spends so much time with Tiger, who's like literally a virtuoso of shot making. Yeah. Like that he wouldn't be like, hey, man, what are you doing? Because Tiger's now is like a mentor. Mm-hmm. And he kind of he's like he's like that really old frat brother. Almost. It seems like he's somehow he's, he's his ninth year of college and he's just <laughs> still there. He's still there. But he's really good about 
10 into the freshman. You know, so when I think of the freshman, I think in like how much he's impacted Jason Day, JT, Rory, Fowler, DJ, Kepka, all these guys that have looked up to him so much. Yeah. And he was at one point almost untouchable and un, you couldn't get to him. He got a healthy serving of humble pie, and now he's like the – he's a mentor to these guys. Yeah. I cannot believe when I heard – like Rory – like Lance told me, Rory's the only person that they know that hits like his stock ball on internet play full rip wedges. Yeah. For somebody who hits it as hard as he hits it and spins it as much as he can, that makes no sense to me. Yeah. But I mean, it. I mean, who's to say? I mean, he's if he's not the best player in the world when everything's clicking, he's the second best player in the world when everything's clicking. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I start. I'm now I'm into the court. Like right now, I think if everybody plays their absolute best, DJ is the best player. Oh yeah. I I didn't think that, but this past year, he really <laughs> he really notched up his putting. Yeah. And his his wedge play was like seven years ago, so his wedge play is spectacular. But he just drives it. He and Rory drive it at a level that's repulsive. Yeah, it is. And he, obviously everybody's talking about Bryson, and Bryson is really repulsive. He hits it 80 yards longer than he was two years ago yeah. with the same fairway percentage hit. Yeah. That's unbelievable. So hats yeah. off to DeShamo. But, like, it doesn't look right yet. Like, Rory no. and DJ, they sit up there, and it looks like ballet. Yep. It's just beautiful, flowing thunder. Yeah. You know, Bryson, it looks like a middle linebacker coming through for his record-tying sack. It has to yeah. be emphatic. Every yeah. shot is well, He looks emphatic. like a long-drive guy. Yeah. And and hats off to him because, I mean, he's, he's doing it, but it doesn't look as appealing. And not only anything looks as appealing as Rory in full flow in, in the driver's yeah, that's way. that's tough. That's tough to beat. But DJ, man, just a remarkable skill. Yeah. And he's so talented. And yeah, he comes off as dumb, but I almost think that he's dumb. Like he's, he's yeah. he's evilly smart, and he's got the he's probably got one of the greatest gifts of all, which is the a very short memory. He can't remember anything. Yeah, and it's it's amazing to watch him, who, who he likes to favor that little cut shot, and with the speed he's got. I mean, yes, Bryson is fast, but I guarantee you, if DJ wanted, if it. a few of these other guys decided they wanted to do it, they'd be faster. Yeah. And they would be faster in a much more efficient manner. Because oh, yeah. when you look at Bryson's swing, it looks manufactured. It, it doesn't look efficient. It looks like, man, you keep doing that for five more years, your your back's going to be toast. I mean, it's going to just going to evaporate one day. You're going to yeah. wake up with no back. Yeah. And it's just like, man, alive. And, and you look at DJ, and, you're, and you, you when you watch him swing, if you didn't know anything about golf, you'd be like, nah, he doesn't swing that fast. And you you, you see his speed, and you're just like, holy moly. You know yeah. him, and then Tony Finau is another guy who little three quarter chuck back, and then all of a sudden he's ripping it two hundred mile an hour ball speeds when he wants to. It's there. Yeah, it's there. And so that's the scary part. Is Bryson's is a little more outspoken. He's like, guys, I'm hitting it far. This is what I'm doing. He made an announcement to it. Yeah, but he seems to be doing that a lot lately. You know, the Masters, Augusta's a par sixty seven or whatever he said. Yeah. You know, he's he's a little more outspoken about what he's doing. I think he's <laughs> he's kind of owned up to his little path that he's taken. And yeah. I think yeah, I mean, you know, it's smart. But yeah, DJ is stealthy. But I, I've I've heard I've I've heard a lot of guys talk about how much work he puts in. It seems like he doesn't care to the to the guy who's just watching on Sundays to mm-hmm. watch him play. Sure, but he cares just as much, if not more, than everybody else. Yeah. you don't you don't get to where he's 
he is now without that, without oh, caring. You can't not care and get where he is. 100%. You can't. It's impossible. But, buddy, when he gets it going, like what he, what he did in Boston, he boat raced him by like <laughs> yeah. 100, it felt like. Yeah. And then, obviously, he played as good as – different masters, obviously, with the – with that overseeded rye only about five weeks old, it was really waxy. So even when they had the greens flying fast, the ball coming into the green, it was like landing in a little bit of glue uh, instead of that firmness that we'll see this time around in mm-hmm. April. It's going to be very different. But like they were like that, I'll never forget some of the shots that were hit on Friday with that back left pin on nine. People flying it over the bunker on the left side of the green, flying it over the bunker, hitting, stopping with like a six iron. I'm like, Mm -hmm. y'all can forget like that's ever gonna happen in April. (laughs) That ain't ever gonna happen. And sure, the scores were low, and DJ boat raced them, Mm -hmm. and it was it was awesome to watch. But I'm I'm really interested to see how he plays this year. I'm interested to see how his victory, after really donating probably four or five Masters, how much does Rory take from DJ finally breaking through? Is that going to be what he needed to see? Like DJ and Rory and maybe Kepka. Yeah. Are like when are they going to win their Masters? Yeah. You know, for the longest time it was Greg Norman. And then it was Lee Westwood and Sergio, and Westwood never won one, and Norman never won one, but Sergio got his. And then there was this long time where it just seemed like Tiger was going to win everything. Then Ernie never won one. Then when's Phil going to win one? Then he, Phil wins three. You always wonder, like, is Rory going to be Phil and win three in his 30s? Yeah. Or is Rory going to be Norman and it never, it's, it's the only thing he never wins? Yeah, and I, I, I struggle with Rory a little bit because I feel like he – he doesn't have that dog in him at times. I feel mm-hmm. like if he if he wanted to just really you know buck down and just attack everybody and just go crazy out in the course. It's it's in there. I just mm-hmm. don't know if it naturally comes out. Yeah, I think that what I see in Rory McIlroy is similar to what I see in a, a unique person. I think he generally is one of the nicest human beings. Yeah. And you have to provoke him. Yeah. To get that. And yeah. he's so nice. And he's so famous and he's so popular and he's so lovable that he never has around him somebody poke him like yeah. Kepka did two years ago or a year and a half ago. If the pandemic hadn't slowed down the tour, mm-hmm. Rory was on a mission to shove something right down Kepka's throat. Yeah. Look, Rory, he hasn't even won a major since I've been out here. I don't even look at him as yeah. a, a rival. <laughs> I'm like, that is so Kepka. Yeah. It's unbelievable. But like that's the kind of stuff that will absolutely hack him off and flip a switch in him. Yeah. Like that's what he needs. He needs it. Yeah. Absolutely. Tiger doesn't need that. Tiger wants to eat your head off your shoulders every day and not care what you think about it. And then yeah. each day pat you on the head and tell you how much fun it's gonna be to play you again. Yeah. And he but not everybody's wired like that. Oh and, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that Kepka is kind of wired like that. I don't think he just doesn't have the game that Tiger had. He's got a unique skill set, especially in his head. Yeah. And he yeah. you know, he's definitely benefited by the big headed driver and you know, you know, he doesn't he's not Tiger mm-hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. No, no, not at all. But he has the ability to mentally dominate like Tiger did. And he hits it good enough. Certainly hits it good enough. But he's yeah. like the thing that separates Kepka from a lot of the other guys is how great of a clutch putter he is. 
you know, Rory is not a good clutch putter. Yeah. Now, he's putted well, especially when he went to Kiowa and at Valhalla. Man, he putted the eyeballs out of it. Yeah. That's not normal. DJ, that's not normal. JT, he has also a little bit of hot streak in his putting, but he's only he hasn't dominated majors like Kepka does, man. Yeah. Kepka gets on, you get up over a ten footer, it's eerily similar to what it felt like in Tiger. It's like this is going in. Yeah. There's no way he doesn't make this putt. And that's to me, that's the cool stuff is watching there's about ten spectacular players. John Rahm's in that group of players. And we're like, when's he breaking through? Xander Shoffley, when's he breaking through? I mean, you look at Shoffley and Rom, you're guaranteed they're going to be in the mix of every major. Absolutely. And yet, they haven't won one yet. Yeah. Especially Xander. I mean, God, it's like, he's a mainstay top five. Hasn't won one yet. I think that comes to an end this year. It's my prediction. But Yeah. Whew, man, oh, man. Yeah. It's, it's a fun time in the PGA Tour right absolutely. now. Absolutely. We're, we're, we're spoiled. Yeah, because we're getting that last edge of Tiger. We might have already seen the last edge of Tiger, but we have yeah. our hopes still up a little bit. Absolutely. Um, but we got Rory and DJ and Kepka early thir- early to mid thirties in their late peak. JT yeah. and Rom and Xander and a lot of guys in their beginning of epic peak. Yeah. And there's a huge list of and then you got people you got just the right enough villains, Patrick Reed and Bryson DeChambeau, to keep storylines going. Yeah. We're in about as good of a position as we could be in. You know, yeah. and plus you got the, some of the Europe like Terrell Hatton. That guy's hilarious. I need to have, I need to more of Terrell Hatton. I, in my I life. like him, man. I, I love like that him. guy. I know he's polarizing, but I, golf needs it. Yeah, absolutely needs it. Yeah, he does These it with cookie such cutter a, guys. I yeah. can't. I can't do it. It needs. We need this. I love where it's going. Mm-hmm. I do love it, and I love. I love Kepka. I think he's great for the game. I love it when he. It's like he oversells his confidence. I absolutely love it. I love it that he's he's either on top of the mountain or he slides all the way back down to the bottom, and he's not afraid to just be like, okay, I'm going back up. But he's always he's always shown that when the course is its toughest is when he's going to be running his fastest. Like oh, he's, yeah. he's got it so mentally. Yeah, like if it's like a, a race car driver out there. If somebody said the track is slick, he'd be like, all right, full bore, because everybody else is going to be holding back. That's right. And he's like, pedal all the way down. I'm going as hard as I possibly can, because that's when everybody else is going to be tentative. Yeah. So it's almost like that. It's got to get to a certain point of toughness for him to even care. Yeah, the arousal level, it takes a long for him to get up. Yeah, and it's almost like if, if it's playing soft and, and gettable, he's kind of like, whatever. Yeah, what I don't really, is, I don't this really is not care. even golf. Yeah, you're just like, if I, was just, if I was his caddy, I'd just tell him every day when we wake up, like, dude, the course is so tough today. <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. It's so tough. Don't look at the scoreboard. It's so tough. And just let him go out there and just, yeah. just wreak havoc. No doubt. Well, I think that we, we've definitely covered a lot of what, what people are interested in when it comes to fitting like the 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 nuances in heads and shafts I, i'm for me the things that i get excited about i'm a wedge and driver guy because mm-hmm. basically i hit it so far i hit drivers and wedges a lot i'm i i love the maverick god did mm-hmm. i love the maverick i haven't gotten the the right epic speed head yet sent to me so i don't have a, an accurate description of that one but it feels really good i just got to get it so that i can fade it uh the sim 2 looks really good um the titleist has been raging in mm-hmm. success since it came out it's been out for a while now but it's yeah. still hot as it yeah it can be when you're looking i know you you said that you're more of an iron guy than driver guys because everybody's kind of doing the same things but when you're looking at driver fittings what is it that you've you've seen a lot, and what are you looking forward to the most in twenty twenty one? 
like I said earlier, there's, there's only so much we can do on center strikes. Mm-hmm. So we're not we're you know long gone are the days of 15 yards longer, 10 yards longer mm-hmm. on in general. Mm-hmm. Some guys will absolutely benefit from the right fit if they've never been fit before. Mm-hmm. Sure, 15 yards we could we could probably get out of that. But if you were fit last year, we're probably going to see marginal gains on the center strikes. But what we're going to see gains now is off center. Mm-hmm. So and, and manufacturers have only gotten better because of feedback they've they've gotten. So you know last year. Cobra, the speed zone, kind of struggled on low hits. It slowed down quite a bit, or some drivers sped up quite a bit on low. I think Callaway was one of the fastest low on the hits. It is no question about that. And then all of a sudden you get that high toe play. And those are the things where certain drivers will will, will start to run ahead of other drivers. Mm -hmm. where, Where on the face can you miss it? You know, and everybody's coming out with certain technologies. TaylorMade's got the twist face, and we've got speed frame and AI face, and all of these things where they're yeah. trying to do something with the face. And that's what we're going to start seeing is manufacturers really starting to play with how can we maximize off center hits and what can we do to get those to be faster. Yeah, and I think people need to understand this is that when you're looking at an average golfer, most people believe, whether they know it or not, that they must throw the head into the ball for maximum speed. When you throw the head, that's where you get the toe hit. So you don't see tour players hit it off the toe very often because they're lagging it. So the heel is getting to the ball before the toe is getting to the ball. And of all the things that I've seen, the 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 Maverick was the greatest heel-hitting driver I have ever seen. Holy cow. And I hit it most, mostly in the heel. If I'm not hitting in the center, I hardly ever hit it in the toe. Mm-hmm. So that's why, to me, I'm like, it's going to take an act of Congress to get this Maverick triple diamond yeah, out of Yeah, absolutely. My. And another thing that you showed me that I totally – because I've been a massive counterbalance shaft guy. Mm-hmm. And I've been using either the Hazardous Yellow, the Orange Tensei Tour, mm-hmm. or the Fujikura Tour Spec 2.0 for years. I mean, I'm talking a long, long time. Yeah. And I love them. But you told me that you should try that Ventus Black 7X. I'm like, all right. So I hit it, and it felt terrible. I'm mean, like, it felt weird. Yeah. I should say. Yeah. Because I'm used to that counterbalance feeling. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't like it. Yeah. But buddy, I hit it like 13 yards longer. My ball speed with the same club head speed was radically. I'm like, how did that happen? What just happened here? And you're like, well, this, 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 and I'm like. Well, it's easy to start liking something when you go from 317 to 333. Yeah. I mean, just go ahead and tell you, it's easy to start liking it. <laughs> it didn't take me very long. It's just different where the weight is in the shaft. I can feel where that weight is. And I'm like, man, I don't like that yeah. feeling. But it didn't change the performance of the shot. I just like, I'm, I'm, I've hit it. And I'm like, oh, God, there go. Oh, never mind. It was okay. Yeah. And part of that's club head for sure. And part of it's shaft for sure. But like. I hit it 317 for about 16 straight years. And now I'm hitting it like in the 330s. And it, that Ventus Black, with the with obviously the balls are changed too. So that Chrome Soft X, that new Chrome Soft X is really, really good. Yeah. I can't believe how far I'm I mean, I am slower than I've been, if not ever. Mm-hmm. I'm certainly slower than I've been since I was probably 15. Yeah. I mean, at 16 years old, I was already over 120. Um I was just sitting there thinking to myself, how is it, it's so beautiful, because I played as good a golf as I've ever played in 2020, 
certainly the pandemic helped because I played so much, but I am 47 and I'm hitting it seven, 16 yards longer mm-hmm. in 2020 than I did in from 2007 to 2019. Man, that's a big deal. And for Absolutely. me to get older and hit, get it longer, that's certainly that's the reason why there, there's all this clamoring for, you know, either bifurcation or slowing down the ball on the, on the, and the driver. I don't think that's a good idea, but it makes people wonder yeah, uh, about it. But like, to me, you have to, like, people really need to understand that every year technology is ramping up the game. So every year it's worth, even if you don't get anything, it's worth testing out like what is happening because it's changing so fast. It's like a phone. Yeah. It's like the iPhone. The, the what they do every year, like going, they can't possibly add another feature. Oh yeah, they did. Yes, they did. Yeah. Oh wow. Well, yeah, let's get that is. one. It's only going to get faster across the face. You're only going to see balls fly higher. Yeah. And and longer. And really, what it comes down to, it's that little that trick of the NASA scientists trying to figure out how can they make the core so hot. Mm-hmm. On a direct blow driver, yeah. And how can I make that glancing blow spin like a mother? Mm-hmm. You know, those are the. That's really what it's coming down to. Yeah, and it's it's marginal gains in multiple areas. Yes. So, ten years ago, it was twenty percent, thirty percent gain in that one specific area. That's the market. Rocket balls, fifteen yards longer. Yeah. There it is. Nowadays, it's this club is three percent faster in the toe. Two percent more forgiving, five percent more forgiving. In you know, you go to these specific areas, and it's small, single-digit percentages that all add up when you get them dialed in. Yeah. And when you look at you know, with your scenario, when when we're looking at your swing, and I've I've known you for a little while now, and I know I know you hate seeing the right miss. So for a lefty, yeah, that hook. that that hook, you hate it. Yeah. So what I was looking at was okay. Well, then let's give you something where you can feel that head, and then also make it a little bit heavier so that we're not. If if anything, it's almost making you a little more shallow, and then you know the first few swings you might see it float out to the left a little bit, and then you know, well, I can actually release this. I can release this club, yeah. and then when you get to the point where you're releasing the club and you're 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 fast through it, then we're golden. It's just a matter of getting used, to, and it is it is one of those things where it's like culture shock for a second. You're just like, oh, okay, I'm not used to this. I'm used to counterbalance, and you've yeah. gone from you know the the Tensei Orange, which is one of the most counterbalanced shafts out there. To the Ventus Black, which is still, the Ventus Black still has a little, the balance point is a little bit higher than, than some, but I think m- more shafts are going to start airing in that side where they're a little, the balance point is a little bit higher. But huh. when you start moving that weight around, I know for a fact you're not going to want, you're going to do everything you can to not have that right miss, but then you also teach a specific swing. And I know you're not going to let your swing get outside of what you call the ice cream cone of success. You're yeah. not going to let it get out. You're, you know it. You know your swing. So I, I know I have safety zones where I can go, here, let me give you a really heavy, almost opposite of what you've been playing. Yeah. And I know I'm not going to see something horrible. Mm-hmm. So you make a few swings. You're like, oh, there's some numbers. Okay, let's keep moving with this and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And we, all, we always know... Worst case scenario, we go back to what we know we're playing well. Mm-hmm. And the good thing about the counterbalance head, the counterbalance shafts, is we can now add more weight to the head. So that's what we saw Rory doing a few years ago um, was adding more weight into the head. You know, it's like a semi going 50 miles an hour is going to do a little more damage than a Prius going 50 yeah, miles an hour. That's right. So as long as we're not losing club head speed going heavier in the head, 
we can add a little counterbalance weight into the shaft and then put a little more weight in the head and now we've got some uh, you know better output more ball speed yeah that's one thing that's one thing that blew my mind is that we put we put a 14 degree head i mean a 14 gram weight in the back and in the front mm-hmm. with a counterbalance shaft and instantly my club head speed went down from like 117.9 to like 115.2 but my ball speed went way up yep and I was like, well, I'd never really given that much. Then it took me a little bit of time to get used to the weight. Mm-hmm. Now I went to the Ventus. I took out one, the 14 in the front and put an 8 in the front. Yep. And because at 14 and 14, it felt like I was swinging a sledgehammer. It felt like it was too much. And I'd miss late in the round. I'd, I'd get to the point where I couldn't square the face. And I hit some, what I call Ric Flair, some nature boys to the left. <laughs> yes. they, they're, headed to the, yeah. they're headed to the trees. So I recognized that that I needed to take a little bit of weight out of that head, but yeah. that's a big deal. Final question on equipment, I think, is people need – once again, this is an ego problem. The three woods are almost flying too far yeah. now, yeah. and they should really be considering that if you drive the golf ball well to not even think about three wood, go to a five wood or four wood or like a strong lofted five. Yeah. Because, I mean, who needs to hit – they're three wood, eight yards short of their driver. Yeah. Nobody. Yeah. You have to have that proper gapping. That goes back to the very beginning piece of one of the things I love about what you're doing. You t- try to get people to say, stop trying to remember what you thought you knew. Mm-hmm. Let's get into the 21st century of information. You don't need to have all of your clubs from the same company. Yeah. You don't need to have a three wood. You don't need to have a 60. You don't need to have all the things that you think you need. Yeah. We need to find golf clubs that you hit your driver 275. The next club you want is in the low 250s. The next one you want is in the high 230s. And then we're going to try to keep it between 12 and 14 yards all the way to the yeah. bottom. And if that means you don't have a gap wedge, but you got you still have four wedges, but the gap wedge isn't what you thought was a gap wedge, yeah. it is what it is. Yeah, People have to move past. It's not easy because we're – Golf is about as creature of habit sport as there's oh, yeah. ever been. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, everything's changing so fast that you have to consider every year experimenting with new shaft technology, head technology, and ball technology. And even if you choose not to get uh, something new, you at least aren't going to go five years without changing and then be blown away with like the radical change in equipment that we see plenty of, like, holy cow, look how far that's going. Yeah, absolutely. You want to stay up on If you love golf, you want to stay up on what's going on because technology, like I said, is changing like computers and phones. Yeah. By the time you get used to what you just saw, it's so, oh, it's old news. Yeah, yep. Well, before we get into the things you like to do to, to uh, fill your batteries back up after a long day of fitting and building and all of that, I know that it hasn't been a straight shot of success from the beginning to the end. There had to be some pitfalls and difficulties. Yeah. And one of my f- the favorite parts of this podcast from the fans is just listening to that that moment in your life where it, things got so difficult, so challenging, mm-hmm. that you weren't quite sure that you were going to make it through it. Mm-hmm. But you dug in and you persevered through and you came out the other side and you're like, now I know I can take on any challenge that the world tries to give me. Yeah. What was that moment in your life that you had to persevere through that lets you know that everything's going to be all right, no matter what the world tosses at you? Yeah, there, there's a few to look back at. Um, and most of those I didn't realize what was happening until after the fact. I didn't realize the growth, mm-hmm. I, I should say it that way. Yeah. I didn't realize the growth until after the hard. 
once you get through it, then you can kind of look back with some clear lenses and yeah, you can actually go through and what go, well, statement. this is, this is what, this is what I actually learned from that. Cause bad situations don't always create bad outcomes. You, you have a lot of times they can, sh- they strengthen you and, and your family or whoever you have with you. I mean, if it's, even if it's just you, but it's like, you know what? Five years ago I was cleaning golf clubs at West Haven golf right. club knowing the talent that I have, knowing that I've built clubs for professional golfers, knowing that I've caddied for them, knowing the knowledge that I have in my head, I still had to wait my turn. Mm -hmm. I had to wait in place because it's not always... Nowadays, most people are instant gratification. Everything's instant. Mm -hmm. You want to learn how to do something? YouTube it. You can figure it out in 25 minutes. That's that's today's thing. You you want fast shipping? We'll overnight it to you. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, Amazon can get it to you within a couple hours now if you live in a big city. So it's all instant. And it's like, I've had to learn, you got to wait your turn. You have to wait until it's your turn. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a priming and there's a kind of walking through the fire, yeah. get forged and ready for your time. So it was tough, you know, cleaning clubs, doing what, working with, you know, 16-year-olds. And eight and 65-year-olds. And 65, yeah, I mean, it's like you're working with, the, you know, the 65-year-old who does it just so he can play golf on the weekends. Uh-huh. And then the 16-year-old who works two shifts a week and you're sitting there slaving it out. Yep. Trying to make a living, knowing, okay, someday my break has to come. Someday it has to come. And then realizing that, wait, I'm in control of my, I'm in control of my future. And then it's, Taking a step and going, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start this business. I'm gonna start doing this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I got a phone call from you. I'm actually in vacation in Colorado. Um, I get a phone call from you saying, "Hey, Answorth is build, building this massive indoor facility. It's incredible. Would you like to be the fitter out there?" And I'm like, "Okay, here's the start. Yeah. This is the start of the big break. Things are starting to shift because I was patient. I didn't just give up. That's right. And then was here, you know." working with Ensworth for a little bit and then we had to we had to shift some things up. Yeah. And then at the beginning of 2020, I officially filed to start my own business. Filed the paperwork, became an official business owner. And then <laughs> by February, COVID's running around in America and then March 13th, I get the phone call, a text from you saying Ensworth is shut down for however long it, you know, however long it ended. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah, we didn't. We we didn't know. And so I'm like man, I had my break. I felt like we were moving. And then all of a sudden it just kind of was like ripped out and it's nobody's fault. Yeah. But it's like, if, had I known in January that this was showing up, I might not have done it. Well, looking back at it now, I'm glad I did it because if I can make it through 2020 where I, I lose my, for anybody that's in the golf industry selling clubs, losing end of February to the beginning of July, losing those sales and that customer, that client, is a massive hit. Oh, yeah. That's 60, 75% of what you're doing. Because that's when everybody releases their new stuff. And if Golf Galaxy's open and people can order online, they're just, they're just going over there. They're not going to wait. Yeah. And so I'm like, man, if I can make it through that, and I can, I'm still, my head's still above water. I yep. may be, I might have sucked in a little bit water, but yeah. I, I'm still making it. My nose can, is above the, just my, barely. <laughs> I'm, I'm going under and then coming back up, but I'm, I'm still able to breathe. Yep. It's like if I can make it through that, absolutely, you know? And then having kids and then watching them, you know, I had all three of my children went through salmonella. I had one kid spend a week in the hospital. Yeah, that's freaked he me was out, man. Five weeks old. I had another, yeah, you were here. Yeah, that was unbelievable. I got a phone call from the wife saying one kid had a seizure, he's not breathing. 
So I was like, oh, I'm losing my, I'm losing my son. Yeah. So I was driving 150 miles an hour to the hospital trying to meet him there. Um, come to find out, it was febrile seizures from salmonella. No harm to his brain. Uh-huh. And he ended up having two of them that day. Wow. Um, spent the night in Vanderbilt ER going through tests on his brain to make sure nothing was going on. You know, thank God nothing's, nothing's yeah. wrong with him. He's healthy. All my, all my children are extremely healthy. But you start to realize what's important. And you start to realize, one, it's not all about me. Mm-hmm. Two, it's not all about, as long as my dream comes true, I'm okay. Yeah. No. I, I need to make sure my family is okay. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the beautiful part about family is it pulls you back a little bit from pushing yourself so far forward. But then it also, at the same time, gives you a little kick and a charge that I got to provide. Yeah. So I got to do something. So it's like this really healthy of, don't make it all about you, but and then all of a sudden you're doing things for other people. Yep. And so having kids, and then this year I uh, lost my main income of, of what, what was becoming my side income because I was focusing on Summit Golf and mm-hmm. doing the fittings. So that, uh, that ended up, I ended up losing that. And so it's time to just really push hard and yeah. make this work. And so I've, I've been scraping hard to fight it to the end of 2020. Yeah. But I made it. I'm here and, and I'm looking forward to 2021. I, I don't have, you know, I, I don't necessarily have the the crazy story that some people do out there where they've really overcome a, a crazy amount of adversity. Yeah. But I, I do have a, a story of it's not easy. It's yeah. hard. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, at the end of the day, anybody who's come close to at least thinking that they're going to lose their child, man, that was a harrowing moment. I mean, I did. I mean, I was sitting there watching it unravel at light speed. Mm-hmm. I was like, "Whoa, that's a uh, that's a big that's a big hit." Yeah. So like that, and then on top of all of that, then you have your business being essentially shut down. Mm-hmm. You know, man, that's a man, as much as you try to sell it as it wasn't that big of a deal. It's a pretty big deal. Well, when we shift our shift the show towards the things you'd like to do to charge your batteries, historically speaking, although been taking away at this particular moment, are the things that bring a lot of like-minded people together for yeah. the same cause. So concerts, plays and movies and theater, uh, football games, basketball games, your favorite teams and what have you. Those things have all been kind of stripped away. Mm-hmm. But historically, they're going to come back. There's no way that they won't. Yeah, absolutely. When, when you were growing up, I know you have a, you're, you have heavy ties in the music industry. Who are your favorite bands and 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 acts when you were uh, when you were growing up? I always I've always been I've always been an old man when it comes to music trapped in a young man's body. Is that right? I love Whitney Houston. I love Luther Vandross. I love Lionel Richie. Yeah. Those are my like I loved. I like to put on music where I can have it on. And it kind of sits there. It's not in my face 24-7. It's not right there. Now, I love going back through the, the 2000s and listening to what I grew up mm. in high school, kind of blaring, it's f- you know, full blast on my, on my car stereo. But, mm. you know, I, I always kind of draw back to a little bit of Dave Matthews is easy for me to listen to. I like that. I like anybody who's got musical talent. You yeah. know, a lot of days, I'm getting so old school. I hear myself and I'm like 60 in my head now because I used to be that kid saying, "Oh, this band is the best band ever." And the you know the 40 year old next to me is like, "That's nah, not music." And now I am that 40 year old telling the new guys, "Justin Bieber is not music or whoever." Yeah, that's right. But I, I can appreciate talent. I just appreciate talent. So yeah. if somebody gets out there and you can tell they're naturally, they're just they're just gifted. Mm-hmm. And it's like you watch, like I got to see you two live a few times, wow. and you watch 
you know, Bono out there, and you're just like, dude, he's a gifted front man. Like, that's what, a, that's what that gift looks like. When somebody's just, just that, running in their gift, you're just like, that's what it is. Yeah. That charisma that he has on stage. Yeah. Like, of knowing. He's so comfortable with being Bono. Yeah. And he's so comfortable being in you, too, that he no longer has to pretend. Not that he ever pretended, but when they weren't the U2 that we know and they were trying to make it, uh, he, it's a very different to stand up on stage when you have 100,000 people wanting to see you. Mm-hmm. It's not as easy to be that charismatic when 84 people show up at the bar to come see you. Yeah. And whether he was that way when there were 84 people, but he grew with where he needed to be, and now he is as much of a showman as that there's ever been. Man, he just dominates the stage. Yeah. He knows how to talk to you. He knows how to get you into the next song yeah. and lock you in. And those are the things that really, that's the good stuff. Yeah. And I can, I can say I'd much rather see them live than listen to a CD of theirs. But then there's other bands where it's like it translates yeah. to an album. And you, you just appreciate it. I know you're a huge fan of, of Tool. Yeah. And it's like they do shows sometimes where you can't even see them. Like they're like a drape in front of them and you're just like, yeah. because they're all about the music. It's That's like, right. what, what music can we put out there? And so it's like, it, yes, there's a visual aspect to a concert that nobody will ever be able to recreate on a CD, but it translates very well because you almost, you just kind of close your eyes and you're, you're right back in that. Yeah, arena 100 percent, and so but, it translates yeah there's so it's so fascinating because i i've seen so many concerts in my life i love it but like there are bands like you said like there are bands that are so good live mm-hmm. that it makes you not ever want to listen to their cds yep and then there are some bands that sing it so good like their cd yes. that you like you, you can listen to both and sometimes get lost in which one are you listening yep. to like pearl jam to me is as close to what you're listening to on a CD yeah. as I've ever seen. They are airtight, so solid. They never let you down. And in my opinion, ever since Yield, which I believe is maybe 98, mm-hmm. I think it's 98, there's might be an album and a half worth of great songs in their next five, in my opinion. Yeah. But they make those songs that I don't really care for on CD awesome live. Like wow, I like what they did there. I didn't that, and it brings me back to the album. Metallica is mm-hmm. unbelievably good live, and they embarrassed my favorite band, Guns N' Roses, when I was a kid. When I when they did that super tour, Guns, Metallica, Faith, and More, they were that was so obvious that there was one band there that was all business, and there was one band there that was all show. Metallica was like Ponderosa, steak and potatoes, broccoli, and a a glass of cheap wine and guns and roses was like, it was balls to the wall Yeah, in every way. It was so exaggerated. Guns and roses was, it was uh, when I saw them last, like two years ago on my birthday, that was Metallica. They were very professional. They showed up on time. They nailed it for two and a half hours, got off stage and it was over. Mm-hmm. When I saw them in their prime, the ticket said they'd start at nine. They'd start at 1130. They'd break curfew. They'd pay fine because they played till two o'clock in the morning. They didn't care. Yeah, and I loved that. That I like the fu and Axl Rose. His just ability to just not care what you thought and just that was where my mind was. Mm-hmm. But then I lost respect for that when I didn't when I got older and a little more mature. I'm like, when are y'all gonna mature? And they just did it a little bit slower than yeah. others. But you're you're right, man. Like you two and Pearl Jam. I think Metallica's in that group too. That group of music's kind of same era, 
pretty close to the same here. Yeah. Metallica and U2 are a little older than Pearl Jam. But they they have the lyrical content, the beat content, and the consistency in the studio and on the stage. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think you're talking about. Like today, it doesn't seem like the music has any meat to it. It's all shell. It's all beat. Yeah, it's, it's like identity. They, they don't really, like, U2 never really tried to be anything different. Yeah. And Metallica never, they never really tried to be anything different. They were, that's who they were. Yeah. And I think the authenticity of it is what was attractive to people. Yeah. And nowadays, it's kind of like, one second, this is the kind of music that that artist is doing, and the next, it's totally they just kind of go with whatever's popular. And they're kind of floaty, and then it just you never really stick with it. Yeah, you just like that song, and then we play it a million times, and then we forget about it. That's right, so true. What's the best concert you've ever been to? Mm. That's so tough. I got to see I got to see uh, Garth Brooks a few years back. When he came back to Nashville, he was redoing his his tour. I got yeah. to see that. Yeah, he's a showman. And he, yeah, he's a, he's I, on the Mount Rushmore. I've never been a big country guy, but he I, again, I I appreciate talent. And you watch him, and you know, like he was born. This is what he was born to do, and he loves it. And he's such a like he cares so much about how you experience his shows. Yeah, that's one. And then I, you two in Atlanta, I got to go see on their three sixty tour. Oh wow! And that was. That was the first tour that I saw where it was like things were moving and floating and things were happening. And you're just like, oh my gosh, it's visual overload. Yeah, I don't know really what's happening. Cool. So yeah, those were those were amazing. Favorite favorite sport when you were growing up? Favorite team? Hundred percent basketball. Yeah, I was again. I was I was a, I was a good basketball player in high school. I actually have the scoring record in my school. Hmm. Um, I like to kind of brag about that. I was, I was Steph Curry before Steph Curry existed. Was Steph Curry, yeah, yeah, I was throwing him up from half court. Nice at five eight. Sweet. People didn't people didn't know who I was. You were the you were the I original Splash Brother. The White Lightning out there. I <laughs> <laughs> was. It was funny because I played on a, a AAU traveling team. Played sixth grade. We went to nationals. I actually played against LeBron James. No kidding. Did, no, I, we had no idea what he was going to be. Yeah. But yeah, I have a I have a booklet of the roster of teams, and LeBron James is right there. And I remember we we looked back through some video, and I I did score a little floater over LeBron James in sixth grade. A little run and floater. Up Just there. so you know, LeBron. You know, Just I was so you probably know, probably four foot two, and he is six five still. I think <laughs> at, at sixth grade. But yeah, it was hundred percent basketball. It was Michael Jordan. That's all I cared yeah. about. Michael Jordan. MJ. And then I loved I just loved the the way basketball players were then. Larry Johnson was hilarious God. shooting free throws with his eyes closed. Sean Kemp, these oh, guys, yeah. Tim Hardaway and, and I I mean, you asked my parents, I didn't watch kids' movies when I was younger. I watched NBA jams. Oh. All these movies of basketball. That's all I watched ever. Interesting. I didn't really watch a whole lot of kids' were movies. Were you a big Iowa Hawkeye fan? I was a Michigan, no <laughs> I kidding, was a Michigan fan. Yeah, so you five five. Yeah, hundred percent. Yep. And then it was, uh, you know, tractor trailer. Yeah. Yeah. Tractor trailer. Yep. I I would I would go to Iowa games when they played Michigan. My bedroom was decked out. I had Michigan carpet, Michigan bed. Wow. Everything was Michigan. Yeah, it was Michigan basketball. Man, that five five. That was a pretty awesome time. That was a that was a momentously changing event for college basketball. Yeah, I, I, I'm still heartbroken looking at it because you know, like the potential of what that could have been. And yeah, but it, it was a tough pill to swallow. Calling that, that timeout, that, that Chris Weber timeout. That was he was such a great player. Chris I remember. Weber. I literally remember that as if it was yesterday. Like I remember. I was. I know exactly where I was standing in my house, and what I was. 
yeah. hands on my head like, no. Yeah. But yeah, it college, was all basketball for yeah. me. My, MJ was your man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you don't even think it's really close to who the best basketball player in the world is. Ever. I don't. I think LeBron James frustrates me. He's frustrating to me because he should be a thousand times more dominant than he is. He doesn't have, like, he'll have that killer instinct show up, and then all of a sudden you're just like, I mean, at 6'8", 280, Dude, he, doing what he can do and moving like, like he can move. He's like Rory. You should be going, like, you should go out there and score 50 points every single night and have 15 rebounds and have 10 assists easily. You should be able to mm. do that. And it's almost like he just doesn't want to. He wants to be the, the friendly teammate who, who will pass it off and make the assists and do that. And it's like, I just, he doesn't have, in my opinion, mm-hmm. watching Michael when he had that. And it was like, he would talk trash in games and you would, he would say something. And you, you, were, you were that basketball player. If you played against him, you'd realize when you crossed the line of talking too much trash to him. Because he would just all of a sudden. It'd be over. Stone. It would just like his, his. It would just go stone, stone cold in Jordan's eyes, and you're just like, oh uh, no. What I do? <laughs> Why did I do that? Like, why did I, see, I? I I crossed that boundary. Yeah. I just don't see it. I mean, I, I I can appreciate LeBron. I love it. And I think being in the game as long as he had, that's phenomenal. Yeah. That's unheard of. Taking care of his body the way he has. Spends and, over a million dollars a year on his body. Yeah. I mean, he's he's obviously knows what he's doing. Yeah. He's obviously really really good at the game. You don't mm-hmm. get. I mean, yes. It's just, just funny, like with somebody yet. that much talent, he enjoys being Magic Johnson as much as he enjoys being Michael Jordan. Yeah. And Michael Jordan liked being Michael Jordan. Kobe liked being Michael Jordan. You know, Bird and Bird, he's more like Bird and Magic than he is Kobe and, and Michael. Yeah. He's kind of like a blend of them. But yeah, like I was just having a discussion with a couple of different people in this podcast. I'm like, how, even though we probably say he's one of the 10 greatest players of all time, I still think Larry Bird's underappreciated. Absolutely. But I think the game's gotten fancier. Yeah. And, and people he, nowadays, we're, we're drawn, we're attracted to the fancy and the, yeah. you know, the, all the 360s and the back, you know, behind, all, all the fancy stuff that's going on now. And the game's gotten so much more flashy. Yeah. And I think it was so much more raw and that's what the game was back then. And it was, that's, that's what it is. Yeah. Was, he was Ford F-150. He was just, just this is what it is. This is what it is. It's on off. <laughs> It's what it is. So it's, just, it's on off. There's no like first, second, third, fourth, fifth gear. It's yeah. yeah, we're going or we're not. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, that is so true. But he played. Bird played a game where he, I think he was talking trash to somebody and said, "I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna score on you guys left-handed." And I think the first X amount of shots he shot left-handed and made them. <laughs> and made them. That's that's the thing about it. It's like he didn't care. It was like I'm going to dominate you. And now, I mean, it's, it's the same thing as, like, the PGA. We start seeing these sports where it's, everybody's friends. Like, there's very few enemies yeah. in the professional. Like, the top ten golfers in the world, they all go on vacation together. And it's like, that wasn't the way it was when yeah, it was no Tiger, Phil, Ernie, and Retief Goosen, and Vijay Singh. And it's like, they were out there they for blood. Like they were just like, let's yeah. go at this. You know, let's see what you got. Yeah. So I, I miss that part of sports, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me it was all it was all basketball. Yeah, I tried other sports and yeah, it was okay. Favorite movie? Top Gun. Top Gun. Yeah, right I grew on. up and we had a. My dad built this indoor movie theater, like this fifteen seat, massive stuff. It was the fifteen inch laser disc, you know, the big oh, big yeah. movie discs, and we'd put that on. We were it was like Apollo thirteen, and like Star Wars, and Top Gun, and just sitting in those seats at like. I don't know how old I was when it first came out, but just sitting and just 
rumbling by you. We went to air shows whenever they'd come by in oh, town and cool. go watch the, the jets and the planes fly. And it was Top Gun. I, I just, the idea of, I've always gravitated towards the maverick personality of people. I've always liked those people. I, I guess that's probably why I like Michael Jordan better than LeBron, because yeah. he was kind of that maverick, that guy yeah. that was just out there. This is who I am. This is what I'm doing. I'm, no apologies. Mm-hmm. You like to travel much? Love it. Don't get to do it a whole lot now. Like, what, like what are the places that you've been that you, you really enjoyed going to? My favorite place in the United States is Colorado by far. Yeah, it's because you can go back every year and see the same thing, but it never feels the same. Mm-hmm. Because coming from a, you know, I grew up in Iowa. It's flat. It's cornfields. Mm-hmm. You can get you can get sick of that. <laughs> but going to Colorado, it's like. There's these massive mountains, and you feel so small. Yeah. And you look at things, and you're just like, holy moly. I lived out there for a little bit, too, back in 2011. And, you know, you could be walking around town, and there's a moose just walking down the street. You're just like, what? <laughs> what is this ginormous animal doing just walking down the road? Yep. And then you know, it's just all kinds of wildlife. I love fly fishing. So that's mm. obviously a killer spot to go fly fishing. Yeah, for sure. Um, golf out there is a, a blast because you hit the ball a mile and a half, yeah. and you're on the side of a mountain. The beautiful, beautiful views. I, don't, I, I haven't really traveled a whole lot. My, my most my my favorite vacation I've ever taken was my honeymoon, where we we actually flew out to Reno and then went to Tahoe and then went to San Francisco and then drove down the coast mm. to uh, Monterey. Yeah. So we spent a week in Monterey on the ocean. Yeah, it doesn't get any better than that. And I was like, man, this is. What was Tahoe like? I've never been to Tahoe. It's it's great for the people that love the mountains with a little bit of California, with the with the ability to kind of go other places. So uh, it's not like we were there in October, so it was there wasn't a bunch of snow yet. There were, snow was in the forecast like a week later. Mm. So we were there, it was it was getting cold. You couldn't you couldn't get out on Lake Tahoe. Lake Tahoe in the summertime is supposed to be phenomenal. Got Tons it. of fun. Get out there on this huge, huge lake and these mountains coming up out of the lake. It's beautiful. And then obviously you get California. Yeah. Half of it's you know in California, half of it's in Nevada. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've never been. And it's funny, like that's what I, on our honeymoon we went to San Francisco, Napa Valley, and Pebble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We actually we we went to Napa for a day. Yeah, so did we. It was yeah. like we went to my wife went to San Francisco. A huge wine person. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So we went to went to Alcatraz and toured the you know the wharf area and yeah. then we did the city and then we hopped in the car and drove to Napa for a day and I, yeah we had a really cool wine tour at Stag's Leap Wine Cellars and Silver Oak and a couple of it was awesome and then we drove to Pebble and there are a couple of things I'll never forget like one was the first day we were at Pebble. If we wanted to play Cypress Point, we could have. We just needed to make a call. Yeah. So I pull into the drive, into the parking lot, and like, do you, do you want to play Cypress Point? And I said, no. Uh, did you just say no <laughs> to Cypress Point? <laughs> and I just want to play golf one time. And we played Pebble. Yeah. And it was right before the U.S. Amateur, the David Gossett one. Uh, and, that was, and that was awesome. I mean, it was in perfect condition. We had... You know, 66 degrees, 10 mile per hour wind. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, Pebble Beach is to me, it's one of the hardest things for me to explain. Pebble and Augusta National are both very hard for me to explain. Yeah. Because neither of those two are the greatest golf course I've ever played. 
Maybe not even. I mean, it, they're probably top 15. Augusta's closer, in my opinion. Augusta's a better golf course than Pebble. Mm-hmm. But what you can't touch either of those is the history of the game and yeah. what's happened there. Yeah. And so I've never been more nervous than I was in the first tee at Augusta National. No tournament, no anything. Have I, I, mean, I literally am playing a round of golf that matters nothing. Mm-hmm. And I'm so nervous that I can't, I couldn't hit my face with a glass of water as I'm teeing off. Yeah. That's really cool. Pebble Beach, you know, like there are six of the greatest holes in the world at Pebble Beach and 12 that you could easily forget. Yeah. But man, when you hit that tee shot on five and you walk across and you're walking to the green and you look out and you see six hanging out over the edge, your next hour is about as unbelievable golf as that there is to play. Yeah. Five through 10, it doesn't get any better. I think the the view of six from five green is maybe the most magical view in golf. And I think the eighth hole is the best hole in golf. Yeah. But then after you play 10, 11 through 15, 16, and even 17, I'm not the biggest fan of 17 because it's the most incredibly difficult green in the world to hit. Yeah. Uh, but it's got some carry. Obviously, it's got some history there with Tom Watson and that shot that Gary Woodland hit. We'll never forget either. Yeah. But man, eighteen doesn't get much better than eighteen. Yeah. Spectacular. It is spectacular. Yeah. Um, I didn't get to play when I was out there. That was that was. I was trying to be the good husband, mm-hmm. newlyweds. Yeah. Let's not focus. But I was. I was. I thought about contemplating. Like, do you mind if I just take my clubs? And then I was like. That's not. Don't ask that question. <laughs> Just go on your honeymoon. What kind of person? And I'm like, that's the golfer side of me, where it's like yeah. you're going to this iconic area where there's tons. I mean, these unbelievable golf courses yeah. just sitting right there. No doubt. But I asked her. I was like, can we just take one day where we drive through like 17? Let me drive. just go drive and, and absorb it. Pretend I'm out there. <laughs> yeah, it's something. If you haven't done that, 17 mile drive in that whole area, it's beautiful. It is. It is remarkable. Yeah. Final question. You get uh, you get a chance to play one round of golf. You and three others, dead or alive, makes no difference. What's your dream foursome? What's the golf course you want to play? The golf course is, for me, it's going to have to be Augusta. I've never been. Mm-hmm. I was supposed to go. This is my first oh. year, twenty twenty. I had tickets to go, mm-hmm. didn't get to go. So it's going to be Augusta, just because I've never got to see it. And people talk about the movement of the land and the grass and everything. And I've never got to see it. So I, w- I want to appreciate it yeah. more for what it is so that when I, when I watch it on TV, it'll be different. Yeah. So it'll be that. And it's obviously Tiger Woods is number one for sure. hundred um, percent. And then I think Arnold Palmer's in there just cause I want to see what he's like, but I want him, I would, I would set it up to where it's like, you guys have to go full steam. Like this is a death match. Yeah. I, w- I don't want to like a casual round. I want to see them when they're, when they're when they're duking it out, yeah. And then uh, Ben Hogan, but I'd want I, everybody would have to play modern day equipment. Yeah, I think what would be interesting. I think that's a great piece right there. And I talked about this before. You have two radical introverts in Tiger and Ben Hogan. But if there's one person that could be in your group that could open them both up, it's the king. Mm-hmm. Like Arnold and Ben loved Arnold Palmer. And if you've not, obviously, if you haven't met him, you're not going to meet him. I had the opportunity to meet him. There's just the unexplainable feeling that you have with Arnold Palmer is like he shakes your hand and he's got the most incredible handshake. It was like a customized hand 
to shake people's hands. Yeah. And he had eyeballs that like seared right through you Mm -hmm. in a loving way. And he acts as if he knows you and he's known you all of his life. He never forgets you. It's unbelievable. Never forgets your name. And he just always never lets you down. Yeah. And he just makes you want to open up. Yeah. Arnold Palmer is the key to that group because, man, that would be one of the coolest experiences to capture probably the two guys that know more about the golf swing and trajectories and shot shaping that has ever lived and the person who took golf to a level that we appreciate now and was basically the coolest cat in the room. And yeah. I probably you could argue that he probably still is the coolest cat that's ever played golf. Yeah. I mean, I'd want to see it just so people get an idea of you don't have to be this way or that way. Be who you are, yeah. but do what you do in an excellent manner. Yeah. And you'll get you'll 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 get to where you need to get to. 100%. It may not be Tiger Woods level, but that just we're not all created to get there. Yeah, we're all just supposed to figure out how good we can be. Yeah. Yeah, it's at the end of the day. I'm not trying to be Tiger Woods, I, and I know that I'm never going to be. I just want to see how good I can get, yeah. whatever that is. Yeah, and we all measure success differently, but I think the way I think the way we define success needs to change. Yes, we, we can't we can't define it as this this point there. It's about well, what you do today. Mm-hmm. Did you help? You know, I, we have to look at it that way. You know, you can't sit there and look at well, how many Golf Digest awards do I have? How many times have I won this award or that award or done this? It's like no. What's your percentage of success rate with your golfers? If that's a high percentage, you're doing a good job. Yeah. You're succeeding. 100%. And if you have people coming back. Yeah. Well, for all my listeners out there, how can, how can they get in touch with you to get set up for a fitting? Yeah. Just ask questions about whether they think they're good for a fit, which the answer is yes. But there's still a lot of people are thinking that they might not be good enough yeah. for a fit. And I could argue that maybe the ones that aren't very good are the ones that need it the most. How can Absolutely. they get in touch with you? What are the ways to get a hold of you? Yeah, so the website is summitgolfnashville.com. Uh, and then my email is Stephen with a P-H, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, at summitgolfnashville.com. Perfect. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to share your expertise in a place that's pretty confusing for a lot of people, yeah. but a really important piece for a lot of people. I can't thank you enough for all that you do for our school and the team and all that we do here is pretty cool stuff. Yeah, amazing. No, I appreciate it, buddy. Thank you. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website, www.curemich.com. Cure. Cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is produced by Chase Akers. If you've enjoyed the show, leave a five-star rating and write a review. Click subscribe to make sure that you don't miss a single episode.